The reading today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. My name is Matt, if we've not met. And um, as I said to Phil, as we came in together, it's 1 Timothy 3, it's the week where we all resign. Um, As we look at this passage uh, together. Let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for uh, the high standards you have for your church. Thank you for your descriptor here of church as your family, your household. And that is a very precious thing that you want looked after well. So pray we'd think how we can be involved in doing that. And we would rejoice that the chief shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ and in his hands we're secure. Father, help us this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. So I was uh, reminded this week of uh, a quote, um, pretty remarkable in one sense, but church is, is not a meeting you attend, it's a family you belong to. And of course that makes quite a big difference, doesn't it? Um, meetings. Um, when I said, I said, what have you got coming up tomorrow? Have you got a meeting? No one goes, yes. Um, that's just how it is. And it makes a real difference how you think about a Sunday morning, I guess, practically. Uh, I'm coming to a meeting but there'll be 140 or 50 people in the room, and they won't, no one will notice if I'm there. It's just a meeting. It's a bit different if you think, I'm gathering with my family, and if I'm not there, someone will notice. That's different. Uh, emotionally, again, no one gets particularly excited by a meeting, but you do care about your family. They have the capacity to drive you potty um, and be very annoying. But at the same time, no one cares for you in quite the same way sometimes as your family. There are seasons 
where they bring you enormous joy, of course. Well, we'll get to it mainly next week, verse 15 of chapter 3, but Paul describes the church as God's household, his family, those who dwell together. We're really, really looking at 1 to 13 this week. But the reason that it matters so much who is leading, who's got positions of, of leadership in a church, is because it's God's household. And you want the people leading the family of God to be suitable for the job, he's saying here. It matters who leads a family. Now, of course, many here would have had good parents. Flawed, yes. Drive you nuts at points, yes. Of course, all of that. But basically, good parents. Uh, others here, not so. And it's very damaging. Some here would say, I'm still, as an adult, scared of my parents. Damaging. It matters who is in charge of the family. And so in this passage today, 1 Timothy 3, Paul is clear, we need to take great care over who we appoint to lead his family. And if I very lazily put it, the two mistakes you can make in it, I guess. One, um, to be somewhat lazy or, or indifferent, or oh, I don't really care who's in charge. Well, does it, well, you know, it's fine, it doesn't fuss me. On the other hand, you could become super cynical and think, well, there's no one worthy of trust in the 21st century. Just look around the world, you can't trust anyone. Whereas what we want are, Paul says, not perfect, but broadly worthy of respect, leading the family. If you're joining us, we're working our way through this letter of uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, the great concern, the sort of dominant idea, is that God is a savior who wants all people to come to a saving knowledge of the faith. And so can you just stop those false teachers who are obsessed with details and, and, and legalistic minutiae, stop them and raise up good leaders who are going to unite the church on this task of telling people that God is a savior, that you unite the church so it's beyond slander, so the church doesn't keep getting slandered, um, as was happening back in Ephesus then. And again, you might think, I don't really care how the church is structured. I don't really care about the leadership thing. I turn up, I do my thing. Um, but you do. We all do. We all know that who's in charge affects us, be it politically, be it in the workplace, in the family, in the church. It, it does affect us who has got been given leadership responsibilities for good and bad. You can sort of hide yourself away and minimize the damage or the good they do to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'll still affect you. It'll affect the culture of a place. And it's probably worth saying my last sort of comment at the beginning. We're in a season, I guess, over the last few years where lots of leaders of churches have been exposed as not beyond reproach. In fact, terrible. So just here's some I picked up headlines, just newspapers from the last month. It's just the last month. You've know, got problems, you know, the Christian Glastonbury, you know, Durham, uh, safeguarding concerns, general. It's just the last month. You go back over the last two, three years, been a lot of, particularly high profile, but you don't have to limit it to that. 
Christian leaders who have fallen by the quality. They wouldn't have met the standard of 1 Timothy 3. And you have to ask, how has that happened? How has that been, been permitted to take place? And perhaps it's a passage that hasn't been taken seriously enough over the last few years. But what we mustn't do is become super cynical, as I say. Uh, perhaps, I'm not sure if this works, but perhaps it's a bit like the Met Police at the moment. Are there some corrupt officers? Yes. Sexist, racist? Yes, there are. No doubt about it. Are there some stations where the culture is bad? Yes. I think empirically there's evidence. Should you distrust every policeman in London? Oh, no, don't do that. Then we're in real trouble. Some are good guys trying to do their best. And the same, presumably, in church leadership. There are some terrible people who should never have been there. There are some institutions which probably the culture is terrible. But most, most flawed, but trying to do their best. And so we mustn't become super cynical on this front. So there's the challenge. Not to be naive, um, but on the other hand, not, and therefore not care about who's running things. But on the other hand, not to be too cynical and fail to trust anyone. And so Paul gives us this section to try and help guide us in that. Broadly, two categories, the overseers and the deacons, and then an obvious point for one and all, I think. So we'll work through it like this. Overseers must be beyond reproach. Deacons must be worthy of respect. And the household generally should follow this sort of servant. So work our way through. First then, overseers. Overseers must be above reproach. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer um, desires a noble task. It's noble, good, beautiful, admirable. Translate it how you want. It's a good thing to be an overseer. And I've scribbled at the bottom, overseer, elder, they are just completely synonymous, interchangeable terms, pretty much, in the New Testament. It's a good thing. And there's to be multiple. There's never a concept of one dominant leader uh, in the church in the New Testament. Let me try and summarize in these three ways. Uh, First, there's no serious weakness. That's the key criteria for uh, selecting those in charge. Character. Paul's great concern is that the reputation of churches is not blemished. Then people won't hear about God being a savior. And so the headline, particularly verses 2 and 3, the overseer is to be above reproach. And the section concludes, verse 7, must have a good reputation with outsiders. Okay, so it really matters how they're acting. Because Paul wants the world to know that God is a savior, that Jesus is the one mediator between man and God who gave his life as a ransom for all. And people won't hear that if they just see like headlines and headlines like those we've just seen. They just won't take the church seriously. So it does matter. Verses 2 and 3, they cover quite a lot of ground, uh, the list here. Um, Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Able to teach, we come back to you, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I think you might summarize it, no serious weakness. Don't, don't try and find 
someone perfect because Jesus came. He's gone from the world uh, physically uh, here by his spirit. But there's, you won't find Mr. Perfect for this role. But beyond reproach is the headline. So again, on the one hand, it's no good saying, ah, oh, yes, now let me tell you. I saw, um, I don't know, one of the elders the other day, and he was clearly annoyed. He, he had clearly, um, he had lost his temper with his car. Uh, and uh, demonstrating a, a lack of self-control as he kicked the tire. Um, and so that's it. <laughs> He's out. Um, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, hold on. Uh, is there a consistent pattern of loss of anger with people? One off, well, people make mistakes. Repeated, ah, now that's a problem. So on one hand, you can't just penalize someone for a stumble. But is it common? Does it manifest frequently in different settings with different people? There's a pattern here. Well, that would probably preclude them. That's not beyond reproach. On the other hand, though, what you mustn't do is just say, uh, well, look, everyone's a sinner. He's a sinner. Yes, we know. I mean, he's a good guy. We all know that, I mean, he blows his, he's got a short fuse and blows his top every other day. But, well, we're all sinners, and so don't worry about it. You mustn't do that either. That's not beyond reproach. That's a serious weakness if it's happening every other day, once a week, whatever it may be. Do you see? No serious weakness. I've, uh, um, I enjoyed reading this book. Uh, I know one or two are reading at the moment. Uh, this biography of Tim Keller uh, by uh, Colin Hansen, tangentially, he's coming here on the 4th of July, uh, the author, to... Um, for a Q&A. But uh, this is a good book. Uh, I commend it to you, the, uh, the biography of uh, Tim Keller, the, the uh, New York pastor who um, uh, sadly for us has gone to be uh, with Jesus uh, in the last month. But it's striking. Uh, I found it consoling. There was one point where most of the staff team were annoyed with him. Yeah, really? You too. Um, uh, that was consoling. But uh, he makes the observation uh, you won't find people close to Tim Keller who idolize him. Not because they think he's fake, but because they know his weakness and his penchant to be a people pleaser, to avoid conflict. He's transparent about his sins, but they admire him for his humility and his character because he knows he's not perfect and he asks for help. Okay. Um... That's what you want, beyond reproach. Uh, got, I got, I've got my flaws. Let me, I'm, I'm not going to tell you publicly. Um, those who know me well would know them well. Uh, got, but again, beyond reproach, is it serious? Is it a battle? That's what we're talking about here. No serious weakness. Uh, next little thing, able to manage. Verses 4 to 7 have these three longer comments, uh, able to manage, not a recent convert and a good reputation with outsiders. But verse 4 and 5, this gets the longest airtime. Verse 4, the overseer must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church. Uh, intriguingly, uh, we'll get there in a few weeks' time, but chapter 5, verse 14, just glance across. Uh, wives who marry, they are to manage 
their homes. It's a different word. Uh, here in chapter 3, manage has the sense of uh, be the public face of, stand in front of, lead, uh, whereas in chapter 5, much more of an internal management of the household, but uh, manage in slightly different ways. But here, he must manage his family well and see that his children obey him. Ah, well, until what age? Uh, what are you going to say? What, what happens if, you, if, if your child reject, you know, disagrees with you and doesn't take your advice when they're 45? Is that okay? 30? 18? 12? What are you... What are you gonna, it's quite hard to pin it down precisely, I think. Um, I don't think we're game. We're looking for perfection. But how does dad manage the household positively? What is the culture that is set reactively, what does dad do when things go wrong? When the teenager gets drunk on a regular basis, when they say, I don't want to go to church, how is that handled? Not perfection, but how, how does he handle those things? Is there a mixture of encouragement and challenge Generosity and parameters, firmness. Is, is, how does he manage? Or for someone who's single, who's want to be an elder, how do they manage their workplace and their you know, How do they manage? How do they deal with things? Because what's the elder going to do or the overseer do when something goes wrong at church? When people go off the rails and do crazy stuff, is he able to both encourage but also challenge? So that's not okay? We need to stop that? How's that going to happen? So I don't think Paul wants perfect dads, but those who set a good culture and manage the mess when it goes wrong, because life is complicated. I um, think of a friend who's a, who's a church minister elsewhere in the country and uh, with three kids, and he said, our third child has caused us more tears, more angst than the other two certainly combined rebellious, rude, troublesome, ugh. But there are moments where I give thanks enormously to God for them. Because if I just had the first two kids who were pretty straightforward, I think I'd be self-righteous. I think, what's the problem with parenting? It's easy. I think God knew that I needed a third child to make me realize it's pretty hard. And managing is complicated, I think. Able to manage. A hospitable teacher is the last. I only mention that because uh, these are the only two traits, offering hospitality and able to teach, that the deacon, we'll get to in a moment, doesn't have. Why is that? Well, as we thought last time in, uh, in chapter 2, the public, authoritative teaching in the church, when everyone's gathered together on a Sunday, when this is what we believe, that is to be handled by suitably qualified male elders. And again, in this setting, stop the false teachers and make sure you've got people there who are proclaiming the truth and living it out. Hospitable, that's a good thing. I think probably also in, in culturally in Ephesus at the time, Christians would be traveling from city to city and the, the, the overseer is the public face of the church who welcomes people in. I think, again, it's this public leadership role is what's being held up. Okay. Let me draw back a moment. What happens 
here at Christchurch Mayfair if there is someone in leadership who is not above reproach? Uh, well, I hope you'd speak up. Uh, I hope, I'm not sure we got it right, but I hope there's a culture where it's easy enough to, to question, even to criticize, and just, you know, encouragement is also good, um, but, you know, to criticize and say, why on earth are we doing that? And people feel they can do that. I, maybe doesn't, everyone doesn't feel that. Certainly some do feel that, and that's good. Um, but I hope people would speak up just occasionally. Like you get, a, you get a conversation or maybe an email which says, not an overseer or elder, but, oh, I, I wonder, one of the small group leaders, look, I, I saw this. I saw them doing this. I, I may have misunderstood. It may just be a one-off, but I thought I'd mention it because if that's a pattern, there's a problem. Up to you. Stick it in the back of your mind and, you know, happy to talk more if you need to. Yeah, that's good. It's good. Someone's saying, oh, I'm not sure what I think. Is that something or not? Well, let me pass it on. It's good. In the most serious of cases, what would you do if you had a complaint? Sorry, it's a bit glum, is it? But what would you do if you had a complaint against me or one of the staff or one of the existing overseers or elders? And you thought, well, how is this going to be handled? At the bottom, so it's a bit dull, but at the bottom of um, Time Out, the church email every week, you may not get that far. I'm sure you read all the way to the bottom every week. But uh, just in case you don't, Oh, look, there! you can click through to there's a four-page complaints procedure about what to do. There's an email address. It's at the bottom of the sheet as well. Just so you know, if you email that, that goes to not the staff, not the elders. It goes to Maggie Rickford on the PCC. It will automatically go to two people outside of CCM. Sarah Farabell, some would know, used to be on the staff team. Rupert Standring is the minister of a church down in Fulham. So external, if you had any serious complaints, that would be the thing to do. It may be useful to say, because prevention is always better than cure, isn't it? Every staff member here has 360-degree uh, reviews uh, every year, June and July. They take place. Um, so for my review, which the two church wardens carry out, all the staff are invited to uh, anonymously comment. The PCC elders are invited. Do they want to comment? You may want to know that. But drawing back again, um, the overseers... How might you summarize it? I think in some ways, they must have the strength to manage and the strength of self-control. So they must be able to manage things. If things are going wrong, you've got to stop it. If someone is misbehaving, you've got to get in there. But to do so with self-control, must be able to manage, but to manage gently, self-awareness, self-control, it's got to be that combination, I think is what Paul is asking for here. That's the overseers. Second little group, uh, a little more briefly now, uh, the deacons. The deacons must similarly be worthy of respect. So verse 8, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect. We're going to get that three times, you see. So verse uh, uh, 4, the overseers are to be worthy of respect. Here in verse 8, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect. Verse 11, in the same, same way female deacons, get to that, are to be worthy of respect. That is the essential criteria for these different groups. Now, the difficulty in here is that the word deacon literally is servant. That's just what the word means. 
And so throughout the New Testament, it's translated servant. Paul is a servant. He'll describe himself uh, elsewhere. But it's only context that tells you probably here it's a, an appointment. It's a formal position uh, in the church. But it's, there's no great structure here. There's lots of freedom in how you do things. So we're not told that the deacons report to the overseers. That structure isn't here. There's a remarkable similarity in criteria between overseers and deacons. What do they actually do? What's the division of tasks? Don't know. Don't know. It's not explicit. So I think any church has quite a lot of freedom to decide how you sort of work this out. I think overall, broadly in the New Testament, overseers have more of this sense of general direction, standing in front of, the public face of, and deacons have more of a day-to-day involved in nitty-gritty. I think you'd probably say overall in the New Testament. I think in a church such as ours with a staff team, the staff are deacons. We may not call them that, but they really are in New Testament categories. They're deacons. We confuse things. At, at, at CCM, we have a deacon's fund. What's that? Well, that's from Act 6, the pattern of those who are looking after practically those in need of care, financial help, as a deacon's fund. But three specific things about the deacons. They must also be tested. Also, I think, means he's referring back to verse 6. Um, deacons, again, you want tried and tested people, people who have shown over a period of time that they are worthy of respect. Just because someone new enters the church and they're all shiny and look at their CV and look at, you know, look at what they can do in the business world, that is not a qualification. You must appoint proven people. Uh, secondly, male and female. Uh, verse 11, you, you do have a choice how you take it. Either you take the women as wives, you could take it that way. I think more likely is, to, is female deacons. The, the grammar, tedious thing, but the grammar of the, of the Greek pushes you that way. You get one main verb, verse 2, overseer to be above reproach. And then in the same way, verse 8, in the same way, verse 11. So I think it's three different, slightly different groups, I think. be odd to single out wives of deacons and not those of elders. In the end, not a lot rests on it because it's obvious in the rest of the New Testament that there are women who are deacons. What does that look like in our setting? I guess you'd know. I think Katie Woodruff is a deacon. It's a highly significant role overseeing the safeguarding. Uh, Carrie Dow, one of the two church wardens legally responsible as a deacon. Uh, Roxana, when she uh, comes on as head of operations on the 1st of August, um, uh, is a deacon with enormous responsibility for how the church operates. All those need to be worthy of respect of proven character. Last thing, here's a positive, lovely thing. They're rewarded for their service. So verse 13 Those who have served well will gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see those two elements? One, an excellent standing. It's a noble task to be an overseer or a deacon. It should be respected. And if you do the job well, people will notice. Your reputation benefits. But then secondly... Great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. You throw yourself into serving, you think, oh yeah, 
this is oh, it's all true, isn't it? <laughs> it just there's a virtuous spiral here. Now that is particularly true for the deacons, but it's also a general biblical principle. Jesus has done all that you and I need to get us to heaven. The entry is because of him, not because of anything you do. But you will enjoy the journey to heaven much more if you're serving. You'll have, he says here, greater assurance, peace, joy. You'll be more blessed here on earth if you're actively serving. He gets you in, but the journey's a whole lot better if you do this. It's similar. Just let me show you that general principle. You can just flick over a page, chapter 6 and verse 18. We get there at some point in July. Chapter 6 and verse 18. Paul is talking about the, the wealthiest, and he says, 6.18, command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Those who are really wealthy, command them to do two things, to be rich in good deeds, get on with serving others, and be generous with their money. What happens if they do those things? They take hold of life that is truly life. Hold on a minute. Doesn't Jesus get you into heaven? Yes. But if you serve, you're grasping hold of heaven ever more tightly. You're looking forward to it ever more. The journey there is more enjoyable for you. So if I may briefly just take a sideways step, and this is a sideways step from the passage, referring back to um, uh, what Liz was saying about opportunities, your options uh, to serve. Now, Please don't hear that as, a, that's the full table, Whoa, it's like you can't even see that. We've given you a sort of simplified version in your sheets. But um, don't hear that as, oh, the, the staff are asking me to give a hand. Because if you understand this principle of serving gives you greater assurance, you take hold of life, you're investing treasure in heaven, that sort of principle. If you, if you understand that rightly, you, some of you should be sat here this morning thinking, hold on a minute, why hasn't anyone asked me to serve? I'm missing out. You need to ask me to serve. Now, there's one or two here who have asked me, how can I serve? And I haven't got back to you yet. And that, you know, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> but you should be thinking, well, yeah, I want to grasp hold of life. I want greater assurance in the Christian faith. Can, well, how can I serve? How can I do that? Can you tell me how to do that, please? If, if someone asks you, can you serve in this way? You should be thinking, oh, thank goodness for that. I know that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. And so now I've got an opportunity to serve in a new way. I can be more blessed. Yes, thank you. Where is Liz Hayden and those tables? I'm going to be the first there. If you understand what he's saying here. Rewarded for service. So the overseers must be above reproach. Similarly, the deacons must be worthy of respect. So for everyone, well, the general principle, look, the household should follow this sort of servant. Here in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is essentially saying, put people in charge who are consistently Christian, not perfect, but consistent, confess their sins, repent before you. But essentially those who are trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and model the Christian life, or as Paul would write elsewhere, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. 
And then you're on safe ground, aren't you? You look at the Lord Jesus and think, there's no one who was beyond reproach, although he was. There is one who was perfect. Even the outsiders could say of him, well, he's got a good reputation. Even Pontius Pilate can say, this man has done nothing wrong. There's there's no flaws here. What do you want about? This is a good guy. Here is one who, of course, was never conceited and fell into the devil's trap of pride. Of course he didn't. Faced the devil himself and resisted those temptations. His defining mark was humility. You look at perhaps how he manages his disciples with a mixture of his teaching and rebuking and encouragement and warning and love. And you think, oh, it looks a bit like that. Sometimes it's get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Most of the time it's feed my sheep and look, there's more grace for you and there's more grace. Look at how he does that. How he treats his own family, even at the point of death. Could you look after my mother? Look at that. In many ways, I think one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus is actually in Isaiah 40, where we're told in Isaiah chapter 40, he rules with a mighty arm and he carries his lambs in his arm so that they're close to his heart. So what is Jesus' arm like? It's tough and you don't want to, you know, he'll protect you, but it's tender. And I think that's what the, Paul is asking for here. You want people who can manage, and sometimes you've got to be tough to do that, but also tender. And the arm is both and gets it right. Now, there are no perfect dads on earth. There are no perfect overseers on earth. But those who are trying to be beyond reproach in doing this, toughness, tenderness, that's who you're looking for. And in the end, you follow this sort of servant. You follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're all doing that, the household is going to be a pretty healthy place, right? (laughs) If we're doing that, we should be out of spots, leaders. Hold on a minute. That's not right. That's not what it looks like according to the scriptures. If we're doing that and looking to him, we'll all be aspiring to be deacons servants, serving one another. So in the end, it all goes well when we look to him. Toughness, tenderness, perfectly combined in the great shepherd. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, there will be a mixture of experiences here in this room. Some will uh, be able to give you enormous thanks that their life, uh, they've sat under uh, leaders who have tried to be like the Lord Jesus Christ with their flaws, but have certainly not had serious weakness that would prevent them from leading. Father, for others, that's not true. In our families, we've known uh, overbearing or feeble parenting. In our churches, we've seen overbearing or feeble leadership. Father, would we be a church where, well, collectively, we're seeking to serve in this sort of way, where the leadership is marked by trying 
to do both, to manage well, but to manage with gentle self-control also. And Father, what a relief that in the end, the great shepherd of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep us, please, looking to him for the strength to do this, for the encouragement to keep going when we see leaders fail. Father, we ask this in his name. Amen.